If you're visiting, we have been going through the Bible in the last 20 months, and we are wrapping it up, and we come to the book of Revelation. Actually, Revelation is really appropriate at Christmas time. The reason being Advent, what these candles are lit over here, is to celebrate not just his coming to this world the first time as a child, but Christ is coming back King of King and Lord of Lords. This morning, we are going to cover the entire book of Revelation in 22 minutes. It's a very exhaustive study, so we're about to do that. But before we do that, the question is, what if you could see the story of the end of the world through the eyes of a child? Jesus said, actually, unless you become as a little child, you'll never inherit the kingdom of earth. So we've asked our drama department, if you had a teacher and you were now a preschool class, that shouldn't be hard for some of us here, okay? And it was just about ready to do nap time, and she's going to read the story about the end of the age. Here it comes. Good morning, class. Thank you very much. Now, before nap time today, we're going to hear a wonderful story about the great and glorious God and this silly, prideful little angel. So get comfy. You ready? Once upon a time, there was a very good and glorious God who lived in a land called heaven. And he made everything you see and everything you don't see. And one of the things he made was a beautiful angel named Satan. (laughs) Satan was so beautiful that he came to think that he was greater than God himself. Isn't that silly? So, even though it made God very sad, he had no choice but to throw the prideful angel out of heaven. And this made Satan very angry. And he swore that he would use all his powers to defeat the great and glorious God. And you know what all that anger and pride did to Satan? Made him very ugly. Isn't that sad? Soon after, the great and glorious God made a wonderful place called Earth. And on it, he put animals and people and mountains and trees and flowers and frogs. And it was very good. And this made Satan even more angry. Because everything and everyone on Earth worshipped the great and glorious God and not him. So, Satan decided that he would hurt the Lord by trying his best to destroy his creation. So Satan invented lying and murder and Las Vegas. (laughs) As time went on, the great and glorious God got fed up with Satan messing around with his creation and decided the time had come to have a perfect world where there was no lying or murder or late night cable TV. (laughs) He decided to take away all the creatures on earth who believed in him. This was called the rapture. And it totally caught everyone who was left behind by surprise. Because the spirit of the great and glorious God was resting in everyone on earth who believed in him, once they were taken away, the earth became a dark and dreary place. Satan, he had a field day, 
and he made everyone take the mark of the beast. See, it's a number. Can you say 666? Very good. And no one who is left on earth could buy or sell anything without that mark on their body. But even though Satan thought he was finally in control, he really wasn't, was he? No. Silly old angel. To remind everyone who is left that he was still in charge, the great and glorious God unleashed his wrath upon the earth. He sent down plagues and fires and earthquakes and unending darkness and radio stations that played nothing but ACDC 24-7. But the people's hearts had been hardened and they still didn't believe in him. Soon after, Satan made all the people left on the earth gather together in a place called Armageddon to do battle with the great and glorious God. There were over 200 million people there from the king of the east alone. It was crowded. Anyway, at just the right time, the great and glorious God sent his son down to stop Satan once and for all. And was it ever a sight to behold? His son was dressed in a white flowing robe and he was sitting on a white horse. And when he spoke... Everyone who was fighting against him died a horrible death. And the valley was filled with blood up to the horses' bridles, and the vultures of their sky feasted on their flesh. (laughs) I know. Isn't it icky? Anyway, the battle was over before it began, and the Lord ushered in a thousand years of peace. And as punishment for his stubborn pride, the not-so-beautiful, poor, shaggy, beautiful little Satan was thrown into a never-ending lake of fire where there's constant moaning and groaning and gnashing of teeth. And that's where he still is today, as is everyone who doesn't believe in the victorious Son of God. But once Satan and his silly followers were gone... The children of God, his faithful angels, and the great and glorious God himself lived happily ever after. The end. Sleep tight. We might as well just close in prayer because there's the whole story right there. The question is... If God came into the world as this humble, quiet little child the first time, why doesn't he do it the second in the same way? And the answer is because God all along has been revealing who he is through this. Christmas time for us as Americans actually is a wonderful time to land on the book of Revelation. Because as we said, it's not only to celebrate the birth of Christ, but it's preparing for the return of Christ. Someone asked Jesus one time, Is the world going to get better or worse? And Jesus said, yes. Good will get better as evil gets worse. He said the wheat and the tares will grow together until the end of the age, the harvest when the Son of Man returns in all of His glory. The Bible never talks about the end of the world. It talks about the end of this age. And when Christ comes back at the end of world history... 
And the great resurrection takes place. And next week we'll be talking about the stunning little hints we have of what the next life will be like. And the next world, how glorious it will be. But in the meantime, God has given this strange, bizarre book, the book of Revelation, to encourage his people. So we said last week, the best way to understand the key to understanding Revelation is ask, what did it mean to the first hearers? What God said helps us to know what God is saying today. And I believe that the message that they heard, which some generation, and I personally think we are getting very close, if this is not the last generation close to it, will be the last deal off of the deck. And the great hope that is given to us are the three points of revelation. The players and the promises and the power. Who are the main players... In the last act of world history, what are the promises that God gives to our future and to people that are going through that? And what is the unbelievable power that can be released in your life and mine right now as we approach the return of the Lord? And Bel Air, with the mission that we've got in front of us, this is a great word of hope. Well, let's do Revelation in 22 minutes. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me over to the book of Revelation to the fourth chapter? It's on page 997 in your pew Bible. Last week, if uh, you weren't here, we saw that John is exiled on a Roman penal colony called Patmos. The Roman copper mines were there. And God reveals himself through this strange vision. It's very literal and it's very highly symbolic and figurative at the same time. But it's always authoritative. We said that seven is used over and over. Fifty-four times seven is used. And there are four basic sevens. Last week, we looked at the seven churches in Asia Minor. They were actual churches at the writing of this about 91 A.D. But they represent what we go through throughout all of the church age. Now, all of a sudden, a change takes place. And in the fourth chapter in verse 1, look at this. After this, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian. And around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. There are four times in the book of Revelation, and I think you can divide it up, where it says, After this I was in the Spirit. The first time, remember, is when Jesus is standing behind him and all the different candles that represent the different churches and Christ is walking among them. We talked about how he evaluates a church. Now John gets transported into the heavenly view. Revelation, as we said, is like an impressionist painting. You know, Renoir and Monet, you don't look at all the details of the figures. You look at the splashes of color. Or kind of like a heavenly MRI, a CAT scan. You know, it takes slices of pictures and then put those together. Here we've got different slices of what is going to happen in the future in figurative ways. And together he's in heaven and he sees God. And he's trying to find language. Have you ever had somebody try to explain to you just a beautiful setting or an experience and they just go like, Whoa! What does whoa mean? Well, you can tell from what they're saying, it was pretty impressive. He is saying it's like jasmine and carnelian, and around him was like an emerald, a rainbow emerald. He's losing language. 
You notice diamonds are never mentioned in Revelation? It's because diamonds weren't on the market yet in the first century A.D. In fact, the most expensive stone was a perfect pearl. That was the rarest. The largest and the more pure of it. We'll see next week why we talk about the pearly gates and the streets of gold. What we think is precious here is just road pack in heaven. And so all the things we're living for here, wouldn't that be awesome? And heaven is like crumbs off the table compared to what is waiting. So he sees God and he sees this worship going on. And then over in the fifth chapter, we have to read this aloud. This is a great scene, verses 1 through 5. Now he's going to get a picture of world history. What if you could see the future from God's eyes? Wouldn't that help your stock investments? Okay, here in uh, verses 1 through 5, let's read this together. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. Now what's going on? There is this picture of this mega angel, an archangel, megalon angel. And he stands and God has in his hand a scroll and there are seven seals. And it is the future. And the angel says, who is worthy to open this so we can see what will happen? And John's going, great, 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 great. And nobody in heaven, none of the angels, none of the saints, no one who has ever lived is worthy to see what God is doing. And John goes, bummer. The Hebrew is something like that. He says, whoa, and he weeps bitterly. And then the angel says, one is. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he turns to see who is this great being, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Look at verse 6. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slain or slaughtered. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. You see that? Praise to the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns and he sees a bloody lamb. The power of God Almighty, the prince of the universe, God the Son who spoke the cosmos into existence, is not when he flexes his arms, but his sacrificial love on the cross. That's the power. And my brothers and sisters, we're not called to try to coerce the world and show how tough and strong we are. The greatest power God has is redeeming love. And this Christ is worthy. And so he begins to take this scroll. And every time he pops a seal on it, something on earth takes place. You've heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? That's, this is what this is. Look over in verse 6. And I saw the land open one of the seven seals. And I looked and there was a white horse and its rider had a bow. And he came out conquering. So the first is war and conquering and then death and then pestilence. And every time he pops a seal, something on earth happens. Something terrible on earth happens. In the book of Revelation, 
Two people get pain in life. The followers of the Lamb, the Christians, the church who is following God, they get the wrath of Satan. And the world, who will not bend the knee to Christ, gets the wrath of God. And by the way, if you have to pick between the two hard times, you want to be getting the wrath of Satan. Because Satan is a zit compared to God. And he does not have the strength. But everybody gets it. The difference is, Satan's wrath, God allows to purify his church. God's wrath is not because he's angry. He's trying to get them to bend the knee. And we'll see that they refuse. And they would not repent, but they shake their fist in the face of the God of the plagues. God doesn't send the things he does to this world and allow Satan to do what he does because he's angry. Someday God's wrath will be perfected, which we'll see next week. But God's punishment took place on this cross. He lets that go through so that people would realize they have need. And so he continues to break this. Look in chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Someone says that proves there's no pastors in heaven because it's quiet in heaven for about a half an hour. But what happens is now there's this pause. And the seventh seal becomes the seven trumpets. What's happening now is things are going from intensity to intensity. And just like the, uh, the themes of a staircase going up, a spiral staircase, hassles and pressure and plagues and problems and now greater and greater and greater... Jesus said, the world will have wars and rumors of war, but the end is not yet. As a woman is in travail, so will it be with the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 24. When a woman is in contractions and they get closer together and closer and more intense and more intense. But he said, the end is not yet. The end happens is when the gospel is proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Someone has asked, where do you think we are? Somewhere God comes back and takes his church. If you're new to this and you hear Christians talking about this a lot, you might hear pre-tribulation, tribulation of these seven years, the end of world history. Some people think Christ comes in the middle of it. Some people think Christ comes back for his church at the end of it. If God ever asks you, vote for pre-tribulation, by the way. <laughs> but what what is happening is God is watching over and taking people through this. And he is being faithful. And so the seven trumpets break in the ninth chapter And then all of a sudden, look over here in verse 20 of the ninth chapter. So after the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and there's these terrible things taking place, the 200 million in the war that's raging, look at verse 20. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hand or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. And they would not repent of their murders and their sorceries or their fornication or their theft. You know, God says to us out of his great love, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. But we're going to do this. And the point being is we go through these times in our own life. And someone has asked, where do you think we are? I think we're between the sixth and seventh seal. Who knows if I'm right or not. Life will tell in this. There's a lot of way to interpret this book. But I think the last act when that seventh seal is broken and that ushers in the intensity of the last of the last days, and God is faithful in the midst of that. 
And what he asks his people in the midst of that is to be able to trust him. The 10th and 11th chapter, there's like these super evangelists, kind of like Moses and Elijah, and they, they preach about the truth of Christ. And then the seventh trumpet, and all of a sudden in the 12th and 13th verse, there's a pause. And this pause paints a picture. Don't you remember when you were reading a book as a child, and they didn't illustrate everything? What scenes they chose to illustrate? And sometimes on the cover, they tried to illustrate the entire book in one picture. Well, here it's like in the middle of it. The 12th and 13th chapter. Remember, there, there weren't chapters. John wasn't going 1-1. One, one. In the beginning, 1-2 was the word. They put that in later on for references. That there's this picture of all of holy history. And Satan does something that Satan always does. He tries to imitate God. Satan has never come up with an original thought in his life. Evil, all it can do is try to imitate God. And the triune God, the mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Satan tries to impersonate in the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And the dragon, if you look over here on the, in the 13th chapter, it says in the thir- 12th chapter, the 13th verse, sorry. Page 1002 in your pew Bible. So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. What in the world is that? Talking about the woman represents God's people and out of God's people. Both the nation of Israel married a little Jewish girl at her prayers that the Messiah was born. And then the church later on becomes, if you will, the vehicle for the kingdom. Someday it will just be the kingdom itself. And Christ comes out of that. And Satan, which you read about Herod, trying to kill the child. You know, this time of the year, families really brings out, have you noticed, the best in people and the worst in people? Somebody at our 9 o'clock hour was telling me his family's all in town now. He says, you know, we're kind of like Christmas fudge. Basically sweet with a few nuts thrown in. (laughs) And sometimes you get tired of them, don't you? You take them to the airport a little early. (laughs) Two days or something like that. But as you... People are like they say tea bags. You don't really know who they are until you're in hot water. And that's what God is doing in this. He is taking the world and he's taking the church through this hot water to see, to purify who we are in this. And all of a sudden, this symbolism is starting to take place. And what we talked about, the Old Testament is the symbolism where you can see a lot of this. And this birth of the Messiah. And there is this tremendous rising up of Satan. Now the dragon and the waters represent all the nations and the dragon comes out and the dragon finds a man Satan cannot put on flesh do you realize what we're celebrating Wednesday night at Christmas Eve and I do pray you come one of the 5 o'clock or the 11 o'clock I am stunned how many Christians get so busy and they don't set aside time on Christmas to worship Christ but What we are celebrating this bizarre mystery that God Almighty became a part of his creation. He emptied himself when he became that little child. Satan can't do that. So he finds a man that he fills. And the man is completely filled out and Satan gives all of his power to him. And then the false part of the last part of the Trinity, there's this false prophet. And all economic power is given to him. 
And he has this number, 666. Look over here in the 13th, or the 16th verse of the 13th chapter. And it causes all, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast. It's a number of a person. Its number is 666. Now, I know when I was first dating Carolyn, she was checking out to see if I had 666 written on my head or not. But it doesn't say that the beast has that. Why 666? It's the almost perfection. It's one short of 777. And whoever this person is has such power that the entire world says, who is like the beast? Whoever this guy is, he is so slick and so together. Now, I do believe, like when you read about in Matthew... The holy family coming out of Egypt. And Matthew says, this was in fulfillment of the scripture, out of Egypt have I called my son. When Hosea wrote that in 750 B.C., he wasn't talking about the Messiah. He was talking about Israel coming out of Egypt. What is Matthew talking about? He's talking about multiple fulfillment. Because the Messiah lived out the life of the nation, just like Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. Remember, Jesus was tested in the wilderness 40 days. Just like Israel was in Egypt. So the Messiah comes out of Egypt. Caesar Nero works out numerically in Latin the 666. And the church was being told in the midst of this unholy Roman Empire that is slaughtering you and killing you in the arenas, that God will be faithful. So I think it was fulfilled in the first century to a point. But the kingdom is not here yet. And I think it will be fulfilled in its ultimate when Satan really does fill a man. And nobody knows who it is or when. It's like reverse thunder. Someone has said revelation. Sometimes there's a, you know, in Colorado where all the lightning storms are, there's a flash of lightning and you count and pretty soon then you hear the thunder. And when they're real close together, it's time to get your picnic basket and go home. Because <laughs> you don't like toasted picnickers any more than God does. Well, sometimes God acts and then he explains. This was that which was spoken of the prophets. Sometimes God reverses it. There's thunder first. And God has spoken and thundered through the book of Revelation and Christ said as the lightning comes and he will come back. And so in the midst of this and then in the 14th chapter and the 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses that, you know, they claim to be the 144,000, which they have a real problem because there's about five and a half million of them. But the 12,000 of 12 is the perfect tribes. But if you'll look real closely here, it says, and it mentions the tribe of Joseph. There is no tribe of Joseph in the Old Testament. And there's no way a Jewish boy would miss on that. That would be like somebody raised in California calling this the state of San Fernando. You would be saying something else. It's obviously symbolic, the perfection. Do you know that someday the last person, the last person that's going to give their life to Christ will bend the knee and confess him. Game over. God knows when that is the completion of those who are called the elect, those who he has loved and called to be to himself. And someday that will take place. And then there's this breaking loose in the 16th chapter of these bowls of wrath. They've gone from seven seals to seven trumpets to seven bowls. And finally, the, the great whore, who is Babylon, who is Rome. 
And all power is given to, to this false trinity of economic and religious. In the last days, there's this blending of the economy and worship. And if you do not worship the beast, just like you have the member worship Nero, we talked about the pinch of incense to the early church, then you cannot buy or sell and that you end up being martyred. And all the, and Babylon is finally speaking of Rome and speaking of in the last days, Satan finally, finally does this one move on the world and Babylon is destroyed. And then in the 19th chapter, there is the return of Christ to this. And then the remarkable, what's going on is something that's called arranging prophecy. I used to play my uh, children in chess until they got so good they kept beating me. And that was about when they were in third grade. But any of you good chess players, something is called a mate net. And they're real brilliant. You know these genius guys, these Russian boys and stuff that got these minds out here? They claim in seven moves they can throw a mate net. And what that means is they've so positioned the board, you can choose any move you want, but you're going to be checkmated. God throws his mate net over history and over Satan. And Satan has freedom and people have freedom, but no matter what happens, the checkmate takes place. And when you and I go through the tough times, God has told us there are three things that we should remember, whether now or whether we go into those last days or the last days together. First of all, you got to keep it in perspective. That's why he gave the book of Revelation. When you got up this morning, did you have an eternal frame of reference? Do you know how fast life goes and how long eternity is? You got to keep it in context. For those of you that have a personal trainer that works you out and they make you do another rep, come on, you can push it. Or they tell you to suck it up and run a little farther and they steal that twinking out of your hand at the last moments. It's not because they're mad at you. Because they're doing what you paid them to do, get you in shape. If you have a teacher and they try to teach you in learning a language, you know, learning how to parse verbs, Lord, deliver us, you know. Or these great musicians, when they had to learn, first of all, like the band up here, the scale. You ever watch somebody, a free-form jazz musician, how can they move the way they do? Because they've learned the octave. They've learned the notes. God will take you and me through things that we say, Lord, what are you doing? He goes, I'm setting you free. Or when a physician starts to do things to heal you. Keep it in perspective. A couple weeks ago, I thank you for your prayers. We had the debate over here at the University of Judaism. And the head uh, Sheikh Khan, the imam of the Islamic faith for California, as well as the Orthodox rabbis over here. And the question of the debate was, what does it take to be saved? And of course, both of them honored Jesus as a prophet. And both of them could point out, but this idea that he is God the Son and that he is the only way, the rabbi read from John 14, no one comes into the Father but by me. And he said, do you believe that? And I said, absolutely. And he said, is that a burden? I said, not to me. <laughs> is that a burden? What he's saying is, is that a burden to claim to say that you have the only way? And I said, well, we all have truths in life, but this is the remarkable thing. I'm saved by a Jew from the first century by the name of Yeshua. A Gentile is brought into this. And that Christ himself someday is coming out. And you keep it in context. Not only do you keep a frame of reference in tough times, but keep, hold on to God's promises. Don't hold on to yourself. Don't hold on to those next to you like they're going to help you. You think your investments 
You think your health, you think your own insight and wisdom and insight, we can't do that. Do you know what God has promised? I just jotted down a couple promises that God has made for us. In Genesis 12, he says he promised that he will bless us. In Joshua, he promises he won't fail us. In 2 Kings, he said, I will heal you. I will guide you in Psalm 32. In 35, I will instruct you and teach you. I will deliver you and satisfy you. In Isaiah 40, I will help you and strengthen you. In Isaiah 52, I will uphold you with my right hand. I will not forget you. In Jeremiah, I will forgive you and restore you. In Ezekiel, I will be your God. I will put my spirit in you. I will save you. In John, it says, I will love you. I will manifest yourself to you i will come again and revelation he says i will suffer with you and revelation he says i will give you the crown of life other than that god hasn't promised a thing so he's saying quit worrying mellow out yes it's going to get tough and you think it's tough now buckle up boys and girls mr toad's wild ride is in front of you but enjoy it you ever been on an airliner in the middle of the summer turbulence and been next to a child? And doesn't that bother you when you look out the window and the wings are touching each other? Doesn't that bother you when they're, when they're like that? And the little kids behind you are going, Wee! And you're saying, Wee! Don't you know we're dying, you fool? And they're just having fun. Guess who's got more insight? They do. It's not going to go down. And likewise, when things get tough and the world is flipping out, God says, Mellow out. It's going just as I told you. And not only do you hold on to his promises, but you live a life of love. That's how we make it. We don't hole up in some hole in the wall with our money and our canned goods and an automatic weapon in the last days. Is that nuts? I mean, trust me, when Christ returns, the last thing you want to do is to be found in a hole with pork and beans and a gun. What he's called us to do is love this world. Not the world system, but the people that are next to us. And then finally, and next week, we're going to take a look at this. It's going to be so great, the return. But in the 20th chapter, the 19th chapter, he is finally sent back. And in verse 7 of the 19th chapter, it says, For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready to her has been granted to be clothed with fine linen bright and pure for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints that his church is finally perfected and in the 20th chapter look at verse 1 i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit a great chain and he seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and locked it and sealed it over him and then he's released again in his final destruction it never was a contest. This is not Zoroastrianism. There's not a good God and a bad God. There is one God, the Creator. And He has allowed evil to take place for His purposes, and someday it will be judged. The forensic, the holy side of God. Jesus doesn't wrestle the dragon. God simply turns to some megalon angelos, this huge angel, and says, You may now hit him. <laughs> and He does. And He seizes him. We just came out of the greatest century of death in the history of the world. It's been estimated 300 million people lost their lives in fighting in the 20th century. 60 million in World War II alone. And one of the great tyrants of that time who was slaughtering many of his people, Saddam Hussein. 
that had all the boulevards and all of the palaces. People lived in fear. You couldn't whisper anything against him wrongly or all of his henchmen would find out. They would deliver you in a bag cut up in pieces on the doorstep. And all the fear of him. And you see him hiding in a hole in the ground. And they pull him out. And the last picture you have of him is a Navy doctor checking his hair for lice. And you say, this is Saddam. Isaiah 14 that says, Oh, you son of the morning star, speaking of Satan, the accuser, cast down. And the world will say, is this he who shook the nations? The idea that Satan is ruling in hell is out of mythology in Hollywood. It's not out of God's word. Satan is on the bottom of the pile when God's justice takes place. And all of those who followed and served him, all those whose names were not found written in the Lamb's book of life. But God in his great glory comes back. And this time of year, this is what Christmas is about. We forget it. You know, have you really asked somebody what's the meaning of Christmas? Blow this one by them. The end of Satan. See what they say about that one. And the return of Christ physically to this earth someday. But we get so caught up and we get so beat up lady emailed me that she was on an elevator and it was crowded, she was shopping and everybody jammed in and opened up and nobody else could get on and here's some poor woman with bags in her hands she's got two kids, they're screaming, mommy and she's got that glazed look on her face and someone said, try to make room so they scooted and she came in, turned around the little kids going, mommy, mommy there's the bathroom or something, the other one's going, I'm hungry and she's holding this and she says Whoever started this whole Christmas thing ought to be strung up and shot. And a voice in the back of the elevator said, not to worry, we already crucified him. He said you could hear a pin drop all the way down on the elevator. <laughs> Who started this Christmas thing is about the invasion of this planet of King of King and Lord of Lords. And he's going to come back someday. He's going to come back for his bride prepared. The first time he was born in a manger and only a faithful couple, Mary, his mother, and his stepfather, Joseph, two peasants, and a few shepherds saw it. Next time, every eye will see him when he returns. The first time there was no room for him at the end, the next time when he returns to Jerusalem, the entire world will welcome him, and everybody will bend their knee and confess that Christ is Lord. It's going to be the greatest celebration. That's what Christmas is looking forward to. One of the greatest weddings that I've ever done experiences. When I was back in Denver and I was doing a premarital work with, he was in the Navy, in the nuclear submarine service and his fiance. And so we did all the premarital because he was assigned to go out. This was actually seven months away from the wedding. I didn't realize subs can go out that long. And they had carefully arranged it so he could be picked up and flown back to be there on Friday, the night of the rehearsal, and the wedding was on Saturday. True story. And the church that she wanted to use was this congregational church. It had this really long aisle. It was so long, the bridesmaids needed water to make it, you know, down to the front. But <laughs> we found out there was a mess up in his connection, and he wouldn't be there for the rehearsal, but he'd be there for the wedding. So we went ahead with the rehearsal, and I talked to him on the phone. I said, that might be kind of neat if the first time you saw her was coming down the aisle. So that Saturday we came out, he and his fellow officers in their Navy dress, standing here. 
He hasn't seen her yet. And the door opened up and the first bridesmaid and the second bridesmaid and the third bridesmaid. And then she stepped out with her dad. Now, he hasn't seen her for seven months. So he started for her and I grabbed his shoulder. And he stood as she walked in. He asked permission to get her. And I said, oh, go ahead. And he ran and picked her up in the aisle. Someday, what moves me is that God Almighty will say to his son on a day that he doesn't even know, but someday he'll say, it's time, go get her. And he's going to come back and he's going to run and embrace us. He will say, welcome home, enter into the joy of the Lord. He might come back for any of us individual this next year, or this might be the year that he could come back for us. Wouldn't that be great? All I want to say is if you're going through times that are tough, and some of you are out there waiting to see whether it's cancer or not, some of you are trying so hard and you can't find a job, some of you are trying to just find somebody to share life with and you feel so alone, Some of us are saying, God, I've been so faithful and tried to serve you and nothing is going right. Some of us are actually standing up enough for our faith, even though we're loving and classy, that we're getting persecuted for. And we say, oh, Lord, what gives? And he says, what gives is just what I said. And it's going just as I said. You don't need to be afraid. You hold on to my promises because I'll hold on to you. And the kingdom of this world, Revelation says, will become the kingdom of our Christ. A gentleman by the name of Handel sat down. And when those words had so impressed him, really in one sitting in a time of inspiration, he wrote this remarkable oratorio called the Messiah. And when you hear the hallelujah chorus, the song is about the return of Christ. The reason people stand for the Hallelujah Chorus is the first time that the King of England heard it supposedly, he stood to his feet and saying why was because he said we are singing about true royalty, the Son of God. And that's why people stand during that. We're going to be in a moment celebrating by singing that together. We're going to remain seated and be blessed. You know what I love about this organ? First of all, that John plays it. That's what I really love about this organ. But you know, there's not a pipe up there that... He would give away. You may not hear it every time, but it fits in exactly at the right point. And we are in that way, that way to God. The world may not understand how you fit in, but God does. And as we're going to be blessed with that as we take our offering. And then we're going to conclude by asking any of you that want to uh, sing the Hallelujah Chorus, our tradition here. We have the music to come up here and to stand. And we're going to celebrate and sing that to the Lord. But first, let's pray for this offering as we give it to the Lord. O Almighty God, Savior of the world, one who has loved us and called us to share, Lord, not just life with you here in the struggle of this veil of tears, but Lord, stunningly that people as me, as all of us, you've called to be your very bride, to share in all the glories of heaven. And God, all you ask right now is that we would be found faithful. Lord, I thank you for the amount of ways that you have blessed us and blessed this church. God, the poorest of us has a lifestyle that the world would long to share. 
God, we have a life that King Solomon and all of his riches didn't come close. We eat food, Lord, from around the world out of season. We have to pick the clothes to wear. We are entertained. We have mechanical and electronic slaves. And Lord, all you want us to do is to say thank you and to bless others that don't have what we do and to trust you. And so, Lord, I thank you for this church, God. I thank you for the 300 presents given for the prisoners' children, Lord, that are going to be delivered by our U25 group. I thank you, Lord, for the 10,000 meals that were given over Thanksgiving to the glory of you. And I thank you for the work of this church. And now, Lord, as we give to you our tithes and our offerings, would you do one thing? Would you receive them? What a privilege. Bless them and multiply them that others may be prepared when you come back. We pray this in the name of the risen Lord, our returning Savior, Jesus. Amen.